Welcome to the Water and Wastewater Podcast, brought to you by Salinas, providing solutions for your customer and value differentiation. In this podcast, Jeff Kisty of the Wastewater Applications Team will discuss dewatering polymers. Bang up job as always on our technical and commercial presentations today. Uh, I wish more people could could hear it, but uh, due to time constraints, we'll go ahead and kick this off. I'm gonna I'm gonna start off the safety uh, portion of the show here, and uh, hopefully move through it pretty quick, and then turn it over to Jeff. So if everybody's ready to get started, we'll just knock it out. Um, so I wanted to talk today about personal safety and security. That's, that's what I titled uh, today's safety moment. I want to go ahead and say up front, I apologize if necessary for the what may be perceived as the graphic nature of this. But a lot of times when I do safety talks, safety presentations, I like to get people's attention. Sometimes we look at... Uh, tend to look at safety and kind of just brush over it as, as something that we have to do that we know we need to do. Yeah, we, we need to be conscientious and we need to be safe. But but uh, like I said, I, I'd like to step it up a notch. So um, I want to start off with just talking about personal time safety and, and try to encourage everyone to, um, to stop and, and just consider the consequences of accidents. And what I have listed here, this is from the National Safety Council. Most of these data are 2015 data, um, but all of these data are specific to deaths uh, that occurred as a result of unintentional injuries, basically accidents. And best I could tell, these are restricted to non-industrial accidents. Okay, so this is, you know, getting back to you know, personal time, not necessarily, uh, you know, somebody getting caught and killed in a grain bin accident, uh, which also happened here in Arkansas yesterday, but, uh, but more while we're out, out on our own time. So, um, starting off 146,571 deaths in the U S related to unintentional injuries. Um, I don't know if that sounds like a lot or a little, but, but like I said, that excludes industrial accidents. And uh, the top seven are listed here on your screen. Uh, number one is poisoning. And as you'll see on the next one, this is the first time that poisoning has, has held that spot over motor, motor vehicle crashes. Um, but as of uh, the publication of this, poisoning was the number one. Uh, and, and most... Most of those cases uh, were from accidental prescription drug overdoses. So I guess we, we've heard a lot about, you know, all the oxy and, and things like that that have become more uh, predominant these days. But that now leads to, leads to all cases of U.S. deaths, uh, accidental deaths. Uh, second is motor vehicle crashes. That's probably not... A surprise to most of you um, and again uh, 
has held the top spot since these data have been being kept. Number three is falls, 33,000 fall-related deaths in 2015, which uh, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know, was the highest in the history of the data collection. Um, number four, choking and suffocation um, is, uh, and the elderly are particularly at risk for, for this type of accidental death. Um, drowning. Um, young children are at particular risk of, of this type of accidental death. Uh, 2,646 fire-related deaths in 2015. And number seven, um, I presume, I didn't see a number, but I presume that, that number-wise, this is probably pretty low, but uh, these accidents are related to weather and disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, and floods. Still at number seven. Does anybody have any comments or questions about, about that? Anything to add? Surprise, seems reasonable. Wow. Seems reasonable. Okay. All right. So I want to do a little case in point here. Um, I know that we're all smart people. We all consider ourselves to be smart, smart people. And, and, and sometimes when we're doing routine um, evolutions around the house, um, maybe we don't think as much as we should about safety, but these things can happen. So, um, there was a person, no no names being mentioned, who was changing the uh, starter on a son's car and uh, actually thought through the process a little bit, put a jack up just in case the jack was not stable enough, placed a cinder block under the frame of the vehicle so that if the jack failed or something like that, the cinder block would... Uh, you know, add an add, added extra safety precaution there. Um, as it turns out, the bolt there was a bolt that was really tight, requiring a lot of torque to break the bolt loose, which, uh, due to this person's considerable strength, uh, knocked the car off the jack. Is that and, you? Uh, that's me. Uh, the considerable strength, I figured that had to be you. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but that's what happened, and, and let me tell you, it happened in a split second. I still don't I still don't understand unless the car bounced off of uh, bounced off the hand there, but my hand got caught between the jack and the block, or not the jack, but the frame of the car and the and the cinder block, and um, and so that what looks like a laceration there is really just a a pressure-induced uh, opening, and uh, so so anyway, I think it was I think there was nine nine stitches that resulted in that little incident. So again, just uh, word to the wise: uh, think things through, be careful. Um, hey Scott, this is uh, Barry. Yeah. Uh, just case case in point with that injury, uh, the IP Rome mill is now requiring safety gloves with the padding on the top of the hand where your injury was, and and you're required to have those with you all the time. And 
and uh, any lifting over 50 pounds, you're required to have those hand, those gloves on. So those gloves are, have got padding down the fingers on the top and then across the back of the hand, like a quarter inch in, in ribbons. I don't know uh, the brand specifically, but uh, uh, you, you feel you feel better wearing them, and uh, that might have helped there. In, in, interesting. Where did you say that was, Barry, where they implemented that policy? Rome, Georgia, IP. Okay, okay. Um, uh, and then, okay, now moving on to personal security. Um, and it's, it, this incident is what prompted me to, to go here with this. Uh, just from a timing standpoint, it just worked out that way. But this happened uh, on July 14th, a couple weeks ago, um, here in my hometown of Conway, Arkansas. This is where I live. Um, but a 70-year-old woman was abducted in a TJ Maxx parking lot. This is a big parking lot. There's several other stores connected to it in broad daylight, uh, 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, they later caught the, caught the whole incident on the multiple surveillance cameras. But, but this woman was kidnapped and, and basically carjacked in her own car and taken from the parking lot. She was found dead. Three days later, several counties away, down in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Um, the motive appeared to be robbery, or what they are saying now is probable gang initiation related. Um, they did they did catch the perpetrators, and and they're in jail right now uh, and being charged with uh, murder and kidnapping and and all those things, but. So, you know, we all have we all have one loved ones walking around and and this goes for for each and every one of us ourselves. Also, I just thought it'd be important to mention uh, situational awareness. So when you're walking around, driving around, uh, whatever you're doing, it may sound like a small thing, but be aware of your surroundings. Look, look at everything. Just pay attention to who's there. Uh, you know, keep your eyes open. I'm, you know, not saying go everywhere with uh, a sense of, uh, you know, that your that your life's in danger or anything else. But I, but I think it, it would behoove all of us nowadays to pay a little bit more of attention of our surroundings and and um, make sure that we at least give ourselves the opportunity to notice things that may be out of place or signs of potential danger. Um, also, gate. Um, I don't know if that's just only something we use in the South, but basically it, it, it means the way that you carry yourself. And, you know, I wrote there, shoulders back, stand up straight, move with a sense of purpose. This, uh, it, it sounds a little hokey, but it's actually been proven to matter. Um, so a potential offender, somebody that may have a tendency to, who's out looking to roll somebody, mug somebody, kidnap somebody. Um, the, that's one of the characteristics of the victims that, that these types of people do pay attention to. So they see somebody walking around with a sense of purpose, standing up straight, moving right along. Um, they may decide, eh, maybe not that guy today. You know, and, and move on to somebody else who's who's maybe slouching, got has their head down, obviously not paying as much of attention to what's going on around them. 
So. Hey, Scott, it's amazing how many people you'll watch and observe now that are walking with just and looking at their cell phones, just totally clueless. Great point. Great point. Absolutely. Makes, makes for an easy target. So, so that's kids. all. <laughs> What's that? I said make sure everybody tells their kids that because they seem to be more so the uh... – the audience doing that these days that that's right and and you know I, I would encourage everybody to you know like i said behoove this for yourself but also coach your loved ones to this i mean sitting around the dinner table whatever your your wife your husband your kids um you know it doesn't hurt to to just make mention of this you, you never know you never know that's that's kind of the point of it so does anybody have anything else to add All right. If not, I will uh, turn this over to the Honorable Jeff Kisty. Let me let me get this going here. Okay. Jeff, you should see. All right. Just a second. Okay. Uh, I just noticed a typo in my. <laughs> my presentation here it's funny okay um, you won't hold it against you no i'll wait till i tell you what it what it was um okay, so i'm going to start off here so so the that the the title slide can anybody everybody see this now nope. no no you can't no okay hang on a second Let me, uh, escape Share PowerPoint files. Do you present desktop or share PowerPoint files? Just present desktop, Jeff, I think, and uh, everybody will just see what you're seeing on your primary monitor. Okay. That sounds good. All right. Now I should be on. Okay. Ever, can everyone see that? There you go. Bingo. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. So, uh, yeah, actually, like my typo, when I put this in, it was, it was whining strategies and new and exciting stuff with polymers. So I, I didn't want everybody to start whining. So I, I just had a chance to change that. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, really new and interesting things that we're going to talk about here. Um, here's, here's our agenda. I'm going to start with a commercial break because I just got back uh, from our fabricator where uh, we're starting to build 10 on-guard um, AF uh, and, you know, defomer controllers there, and uh, the, the new ones that they're making are, are really nice. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Then I want to discuss uh, you know, our polymers, our polymer line a bit, and some unique products that we have and, and positioning ourselves against the competition out there because I think that's really important. We can't sell our polymers just by price alone. So that's a little bit of an educational thing. 
Then we'll discuss some products that are that are really exciting, where we've been having a lot of success with, and some uh, dewatering case histories. Uh, some new techniques, sludge compressive strength, some new equipment for mixing uh, polymer in line with sludge, our performed Dynamax inline mixer. I've got a neat video there. And uh, if there's some time remaining, we'll talk about some uh, influent clarification wins and, and some, uh, some strategies that you can use there. So here we go. Um, interrupt when you, whenever you want. I can't see some, for some reason, uh, the uh, the comments section. So if somebody's putting comments out there, uh, just speak speak up and interrupt me. Okay. So here's a commercial break. Um, it's about the OnGuard AF controller. Um, you can all see that, right? And that's that's what they look like. They're they're quite slick, and uh, they're. In paper mills, there, there are three main application points. Uh, one is where we're adding defomer to the clarifier discharge and then, and then picking up a sample from there and then monitoring how uh, and, and controlling uh, the defomer feed there. Another is uh, might be to an aerated settling basin and another might be to the effluent boom. And this applies to, to a lot of different industries. It's not just for paper. Um, so I'm going to play a video and try to narrate it over um, as to it's only about three minutes long. And it's uh, for those people that haven't seen it, this will be a, a nice short intro. It's a little choppy, but I had to piece together a much longer one so you could see it uh, in a short period of time. Okay, hopefully this will play. Well, so much for my commercial. Hang on a second. Joe, can you help yeah. us with that? Yeah, but hang on, just bear with me for a second. I'm not sure why. Scott, I'm on the road, working. unfortunately. That wouldn't be a good thing. <laughs> Okay. Let me try it one more time. Please don't tell me it's going to fall in the water. No, no. Well, I will play it from a uh, from another place. Hang on a second. I think I put together something here. Some yours. Sorry about that. I don't. I don't want to. Let me reopen this whole PowerPoint thing. Presentation mode. Okay, so 
this is a, the OnGuard AF. It pumps a sample from this side of the lagoon all the way around the lagoon and into this uh, this uh, unit, and then it drains out this side and then back into the lagoon. We'll go around the other side of it and we'll take a look at it. it, it the new ones have a B600 controller on the inside, but this one has a B600 on the outside. It shows the foam level that we're generating and the output signal to the pump. It's using a PID control as well as a sample flow. And all this stuff is charted um, in, uh, you know, where you can pick it up online. So here's the inside of the thing. There's a laser on the top, flow meter, and we'll look down inside in a second and, and see what's going on in there. There's some foam generating equipment on the inside that uh, generates foam very easily with almost any kind of sample, and it maintains a steady water level. The main thing with this is keeping the water flow rate constant. So there's the laser. You look down inside, and you can see it, it's generating a foam level in there. And we try to control the foam level to a specific uh, millimeter height by regulating how much defoamer we feed. In, in this case, we're, we pump the sample from one side of the lagoon all the way to the other. It's about 300 feet. We pull the sample uh, from out in the lagoon. It, the, the, the suction line goes out on those floats near the first aerator, which is after all of the, the defoamers mixed well with the water. The water comes in the lagoon on, on the left. In that channel, the water comes into the lagoon, the defoamer's added here. It, it mixes very lightly. And then once it gets out to the aerator, it, it mixes a lot more aggressively out there. And we use a centrifugal pump to, uh, to send it around, then it goes through a, a strainer on the other side. So that's our that's our short version of the of an intro of what the OnGuard AF looks like. Is everybody still there with me? Yep, I'm here. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yep. So um, let me see. Let me start the slideshow. All right, so there are um, there's three different outputs that this will give. It gives an analog output that's proportional to the foam level target that you're trying to maintain. That's the primary output, and then there are two dual set points, uh, which which if uh, you know you can't hold the foam in control at the primary pump because it's just not big enough, uh, it'll it'll run outside the set point and then it'll kick on. And, one or two auxiliary pumps 
and then there there are time delay relays too, so you could feed uh, hydraulically further down at a later time, and you get a big a big surge of, of uh, foam coming at you. So there's some some pretty interesting and unique ways to control foam in large lagoons, but it also works you know really well uh, in in shorter um, hydraulic retention time areas. Um, we just started it one up at Coosa Pines in, uh, in Alabama, and, and it's working really well to control the foam um, in that lagoon and reduce the foamer usage, and, and I think everybody's really loving it. So uh, we we will have some available shortly. Um, I'm hoping that everybody will get out and begin to do some selling with that. But who, who on the call is excited about this? I'm excited, Jeff. Okay, well, thank Great you. Stuff. Great <laughs> stuff. Okay. You know I like it, Jeff. I know, I know. Well, David, David was uh, one of the architects that bring put this all together um, the first the first time around. We had to do we worked really hard on coming up with this. And th thanks a lot for the help from your team, David. Okay, I'm so, excited too, Jeff. All right, well, thanks, Kevin. So. Um, now we're going to talk about the main content and its dewatering polymers. The first section is about positioning and benchmarking. It's an educational thing for hopefully there are some, some uh, people that don't have a lot of experience and might learn something from this part of the presentation. So when you're using polymers for sludge dewatering, it, it's not so much about the equipment. It, it, the first thing we're doing is we're conditioning the sludge so the water drains out of it. it it's all about sludge conditioning. And sludge conditioning means adding a polymer, polymer to the sludge, getting it to mix in properly without breaking down the flock, and getting the sludge to, uh, you know, to give up its water. And there are a lot of different mixing devices that are used for that. You know, in the up in the left, you can see a flock tank on the upper left. And then uh, in the middle, you see a, a swing arm type uh, mixing valve by Kamlin Sanderson. Down at the bottom, you could see. Um, can people see my cursor when it when it's on the screen here? Yeah, we we can see it, Jeff. Okay, good. You know, you can see two uh, swing arm style mixing valves and polymer injection rings. And then you have this device in the middle. This is something new. It's called the uh, Perform. Dynamax inline dynamic mixer. We'll talk about that more later. And that's and over here in the upper right, there is uh, what what's inside of that thing, the rotor. That's a that's a mixing device, and it it all works to uh, condition the sludge so it'll drain out in a dewater in dewatering equipment such as uh, a belt press or a screw press. So. When you're positioning our polymers, you got to you got to think that there are always some people out there that are just going to sell based on cost. And we're not the lowest cost producer out there. Um, our polymers are specially formulated, um, and you have to really uh, <laughs> position yourself uh, on a cost per bone dry ton disposed. It's it's the only way that you can do it. And you have to get your, your customers and prospects thinking that way, not on price per pound of polymer. Um, 
Our products are more concentrated than most of the competitions. Uh, a good number of our products are 43 to 45% solids, whereas our competition's products are down in the 35, some as low as 25% uh, solids. So if they're comparing you on a price per pound basis, you're going to lose. But if they compare you on a performance basis, you very well might win. So our dosages tend to be lower. Um, our chemistry is fairly advanced. Uh, we have a great number of patents on polymer chemistry. We have a, an excellent um, cationic polymer line that are branched and cross-linked. And we also have an anionic polymer that's branched and cross-linked. Molecular weight distribution is well thought out and, you know, and, and manufactured to be special. Uh, and what we can usually get is lower dosages and higher cake solids due to the structure of our products. Um, and we also have the Aptac products that work at extremes of pH. None of the competitors have Aptacs, and that's and their Atomy products tend to fail. The other thing that, that our products are well known for, at least to, to me, is that the speed that, they, that an emulsion polymer will dissolve and invert is faster than all the S and F products. Most of our competitors are buying products from the biggest producer, S and F. It's a French company, and their surfactant packages don't invert the products as fast as ours. So, if you're running it through a less expensive, cheaper makedown unit without age time, our products will outperform the competition's products. So, there's a lot of strategic things that you can do with our with our polymers. And you have to be a smart salesperson. You know, it can't just be your buddy and you're, and you're going to sell it based on price per pound alone. So you need to measure the KPIs. And, and we'll normally get better KPIs on a cost per dry ton basis. So you need to do mass balance, look at polymer usage, bone dry tons disposed. You need to look at the capture rate uh, with the dewatering devices, which is how much solids are in the filtrate. Um, you know, poor capture needs to be retreated several times. If most of the fines don't get captured and they keep cycling around, the customer has to retreat that with polymer over and over again. Also, um, fines that aren't captured and keep ending up out in the primary clarifier tend to cause over-torquing of the clarifier, and then they have to just dispose the solids and dump them and, and, and pump them out to a lagoon where they have to dredge them later at a cost as high as 150 uh, pound dollars per dry ton. Um, the, the ash that comes through also ends up in the biological treatment process and causes problems there. So, and finally, one of the last things to consider is the, the dryness. Um, for instance, if you're at 20% dryness of the sludge, you know, you'll, for every bone dry ton, you'll produce five wet tons to dispose of. If you're at 30% dryness, it's only uh, 3.3 wet tons disposal. So there's a big difference in disposal cost if you can get drier cake solids. And, and our products are designed to do that. Uh, one of the things that our um, polymer group offers is we offer some spreadsheets that 
enable you to put all of the information in the, into the green sections here, and then it calculates um, all the other pertinent information. For instance, if you're looking at sludge, you know, you put in your sludge flow, go into the dewatering device, feed solids, cake solids, filtrate solids, you know, so you can look at capture, and cost, you know, price per pound. Chris Light's made up this spreadsheet. It's very nice. And, uh, and uh, the cost to dispose of a wet ton, and then it'll calculate all of these other costs. And what you, what you determine is what surcharge there is for, for poor capture. In this application, it's almost $100,000 a year because uh, they were only capturing, um, let's see what the capture rate was. Um, you know, they weren't capturing 100, 100%. It, it's in these calculations somewhere. Um, and then you could also see that although the polymer cost here is, is only $295,000 a year, the sledge hauling cost is very high. So if we can help them to get higher cake solids, it'll drive the sludge uh, disposal costs way down. So it's not all about price per pound of polymer. It, it tends to be about performance when you look at the overall picture. You need to change the conversation and get your customers educated and thinking about that. The only way to do that is to do a lot of sampling around the system and spend some time there and, and educate them as to what their overall uh, cost per bone dry ton disposed is. All right, so I have another short demo here uh, for those people that aren't used to doing sludge dewatering testing. Um, you know, this is what people call and I don't like it, a flop test. I like to call it a beaker port test and, and to look at free the free drainage um, that you get from that. So here's a here's a quick demo, hopefully. What happened to it? Real quiet. Okay, so you get a 300 milliliter sample of the sludge that you're working with. Uh, you, you mix it up. In this case, this is an abbreviated version of a longer video that I did to, sh to demonstrate this. And if you're, I had only glass beakers at the time that I could see through to show you what to do. And it's a little dangerous to do that, especially without gloves. You should be using plastic plastic beakers for these dewatering tests. So you you add the polymer to it. You mix it back and forth a, a defined number of times. I think in this case it's eight or nine times. And you look at the flock that's generated. And you add enough polymer to get the flock form that you're looking for. In that case, I needed to add five more milliliters. And you mix it back and forth until you get the water-free draining well. And then you do a free drainage test through a funnel with a with a screen in it. I'm trying to get this into focus in this video, but it's a you're looking at how many milliliters that drain through the screen over time, and and the time is usually has to do with how long the the sludge and water spend in the 
how what the hydraulic retention time is on the dewatering device. For instance, if it's only 11 seconds on a gravity drainage belt, you look at the amount of drainage in 11 seconds. It, there are two ways to look at this. You look at how long it takes for 50% of all the liquid to drain out, and the other is you look at it over a specific period of time that equates to the uh, the hydraulic retention time that that it spends on the dewatering device. In the next example, I'll show you it, it's only 11 uh, only 11 seconds on the gravity belt. You'll see that later. The other thing that we're looking at is to, to what the um, compression strength is, and uh, we're looking to see how much pressure we could put on the sludge, and it's a feel thing, and I like to just rate this on a one to five scale as to how, how much pressure I can put on the sludge, and you'll find that different polymers will give you better compressive strength than others because of the structure that they have into the, in the sludge itself and how crumbly it'll be. You're looking to see if it's extruding from your, between your hands or not. And later on, you'll see that we have a device in our applications lab that we can use to measure compressive strength and it's very pertinent to uh, the tissue mill sludge, the watering. Okay, so the, the next thing that you want to do in this process is you want to benchmark the free drainage on the machine that either your polymer is getting or a competitor's polymer is getting. So you got to compare your the results to something, and one of the biggest problems that, that we face is we can make a great big flock and drain a lot of water out really fast, and the cost might be high, but in the actual application, they may not need that, that amount of drainage. So you need to benchmark and see how much free drainage they're getting. And the way to do that is you get a, you buy a ladle online for wastewater sampling. They're either 250 or 300 milliliters straight across the top. And then you grab a sample here, right where the flock solids are coming in, before any water drains out of it. And let the ladle fill right to the top. And and you do that about 10 times, and then you drain your samples over that um, the, the uh, screen. Look at the time. For instance, if this gravity belt uh, went from one end to the other in 11 seconds, you'd look at it over an 11-second period. And you would also look at the time to drain 50% of the water out of it. And you do that 10 times, and you would get rid of some of the uh, the values that are you know, that are bogus because there's some sampling error in here. And then you take the mode of all the other samples that that were reasonable, and that's your benchmark. So in this, in this situation, uh, we were at a paper mill, and we, we measured uh, the feed solids here. We measured the sludge flow. We measured the polymer flow. We measured the polymer solution. We calculated the pounds of polymer per dry ton. And, uh, and the gravity belt time, which was 11 seconds that it ran across there. Then we did those tests that I just showed you with the 300 milliliter scoop. We drained it over, we looked at the time to drain out 50%. In most cases, it was like 
around five seconds. There were a couple of oddball ones, like at three and another at ten. We threw those out, and then we uh, and then we averaged the total drainage over eleven seconds. We came out with two hundred and thirteen milliliters in hey, Jeff. eleven seconds. Hey Jeff. Yeah. Hey, can I ask a quick question? Sure. Pro probably not a smart one, but it's not what I do. But is that 50% of the volume, is that calculated based on what you know the solids coming into the to the, built, to the uh, press or the gravity belt is? Or how, how do you know what is 50% of the liquid volume of your sludge? Well, if you had 300 milliliters that you were throwing, that you were putting over the screen, you'd look for the time to hit 150 milliliters. Oh, so, so, it's just, the time, it, it, yeah, so it's really the time it takes to double the solids, you know, that, that you're working with. And it, it doesn't always work well. That's why, you know, you, you always shoot for another, an additional number that makes more sense. And in this case, we didn't, we didn't use the time to double the solids in our, because it was, it was ridiculously short time. Uh, we used the, the time, you know, the total drainage at 11 seconds, and we're able to get better numbers to work with. But if you put 300 milliliters of sludge in there, it's not 150 milliliters of, of water. wouldn't be half the water, right? Well, well, it's close because, you know, this, the feed solids is only 1.8%. You know, so when you're doubling okay. it, it's, it's only 3.6% of that is, is actual solids. Okay. Um, you know, and that, so it is mostly water in these applications. I, I got you. I got yeah. you. Okay. Yeah. So we found that that's what the machine was running. We benchmarked the machine, and, and we're using a 0.8% polymer solution. So all of our tests are going to, because we had the operators get it running the way they liked it, uh, and that's what they're shooting for, uh, That that's what they need to get. And... You know, so it, we're not making up our mind what's a good drainage and what's not. We're doing what the mill expects. And, and that's really important to do that as part of your testing. So, so then we would, then we start to change the variables. So we go to the bench, we get a sample of sludge that doesn't have any polymer in it, and we get the 0.8% solution from the polymer tank. And we, we treat it at the same ratio that's going into the sludge dewatering machine. And, and we alter the mixing pours. So we, we pour it back and forth eight times. We do another at 10. We do another at 12, another at 14. And we look to see how many mixing pours it takes if we're doing the identical dosage on the machine to hit our, um, you know, to hit our benchmark drainage. And in this case, it was about 10, about 10 pours. So now we've modeled the mixing that actually happens, the mixing dynamics that actually happens in the machine. So, so then we could, now that we know that, we can, we can do all of our testing with 10 beaker pours and, and we have to achieve 213 milliliters of drainage to get them what they want. So, uh, so now we could compare different polymers and different techniques. In this case, you know, we said, well, what if our solution strength is half? If it's 0.4%, do we need less mixing or more? Or will the polymer work better? So we did the same number of beaker pours in each one of these tests, 8, 10, 12, and 14. 
we looked at the drainage and what did we learn? We said, we learned that, wow, if we cut our solution strength from 0.8 to 0.4%, we get way better drainage with less mixing. You know, at around, you know, at all, and we only need about 70 mixing pours. So, so then we, uh, so, um, you know, so then we could compare other things. We could look at the, the difference at 24 pounds per dry ton at 0.8 and 0.4%. And, and we learned that, wow, we must be overdosing at 0.8% because uh, when we do those 10 pours, because we only just barely achieved the benchmark dosage. And then if we add less polymer, the drainage went up at 0.8% and even went, went up even more at 0.4%. So that tells us that we were overdosing at the time, and they must overdose for a reason, you know, to get their machine to work that that way. So, so we're varying the mixing, we're varying the solution strength, we're calculating mass balance, uh, and then we can compare other polymers under those same conditions. So these are a whole bunch of different products than the one that we're using, and we look at the, a lower dosage in pounds per dry ton, we give it 10, 10 beaker pours, and we work them all at the same solution strength. And we can see how the different products perform. So in this case, um, this one here, 2449, uh, met the benchmark at only 18 pounds per ton and nothing else did. So that would probably be the product we would propose. Another way that we could do it is we could look at the use of a coagulant and the flocculant um, and, and look to see what it takes to reach, achieve the same benchmarks. So this is, this is all about benchmarking. It's very important you know how to do this to compare polymers. And, uh, and then that, does anybody have any questions on that section? Okay, I'm not hearing any questions, so I'm moving ahead. So here are some polymers that give us an edge that what I was really asked to talk about. One is Drufloc 410, which is a, a cationic dry polyaptac. It works at extremes of pH. All these products work at extremes of pH, very high pH or very low pH. In paper, the very high pH is important because you know, you'll end up getting uh, dregs, lime solids, uh, black liquor that all drive the pH up in the primary clarifier. When that happens, the more conventional products called the Atomy products will fail. And if you have this 410 product in place, it won't fail and the customer will be happy and it'll work all the time. And, um, and because it's low molecular weight, it works at very low dosages as well. But that's the main one for, for integrated pulp and paper mills that experience high pH. A couple of other new ones that you should know about, new and exciting products, and these are emulsions, is Drewflock 2611. This is a, a anatomy polymer that's compressed with an aptac, and it coasts right through black liquor excursions and works extremely well. Um, we don't have any domestic higher charge ones if we need them, but this one seems to work well and uh, we had very great success over at, um, uh, what is it, Resolute's uh, Calhoun. 
uh, where uh, Mike Withenby uh, sold a huge application. We took business away from Axchem, where they're using a dry polymer, believe it or not. Another new and exciting product that works like a coagulant. And bear in mind, we get all of our coagulants from, from we have to buy them outside. This is one we make in Greensboro. It's PC8933. It's actually an emulsion polymer, but it's a very low molecular weight and around 30% charge. And uh, it can be used as a coagulant. And it's very cost effective in, in dewatering applications and some clarification applications, even compared to the cheap polyamines that we buy. Another very exciting product is this. Uh, this is a branched anionic, the only one of its kind. And bear in mind, we're the only people making this kind of product here for dewatering. Um, and what makes it special is that it works over a very broad range of, uh, of, of uh, sludge charge. Uh, the sludge need not be cationic. It could be slightly anionic, and this stuff still works really well. It works over a much broader range than any of the other anionics. And then the other green highlighted products are, are others that tend to work very well in pulp and paper applications. I'll talk a little bit about more about them in case histories in just a second. And this is the first one. So Drufoc 2402, very low charge emulsion. Um, we're using it at about 8 pounds per dry ton on um, primary clarifier underflow in this application. No one could beat us. Um, Nalco tried their product required 12 pounds per dry ton. Axchem tried. Their product was at 12. BASF couldn't even come up with a product that would work. Eventually, we lost the business to Axchem uh, for, pol for political reasons, and uh, they provided a low price, very low price dry and a complete dry feed system. We weren't willing to provide the customer a dry feed system because we had invested so much in emulsion feed system there already. Um, it didn't make any sense, but uh, we could probably beat this application even, uh, or the Axchem with the 410 dry if we wanted to invest in a uh, in the dry feed equipment. Another case uh, of the Aptac is the 410 at an integrated liquid packaging mill. We took the business from Axchem, low-cost supplier. Nalco couldn't even compete with us. Because every uh, so often, about about 60 days per year, their pH runs greater than 10. And it has secondary in it. And you could see here in this chart, uh, when they were running the Axchem material, you know, they were only getting around 35% cake solids. They went to our Aptec. It ran smooth, brought the cake solids up to about 40%. And... Uh, and, and today we've been uh, improving and improving here. And what we've learned is that if we add this Aptac to the primary clarifier to help clarify that water, every pound per dry ton that we add there, we have to use that much less on the dewatering press. So the Aptac sticks with the sludge and continues to help us in the dewatering applications downstream. So where we were at five pounds per dry ton, um, and we started to add two pounds per dry ton to the, the primary clarifier. Now we only need to add three pounds per dry ton at the press, so they get a double dividend with this. 
some something strategic you might want to think about in some of the applications that you're working in. The atom-E type of polymers, the conventional stuff that everybody else has, won't do this. It'll break down in the bottom of the primary clarifier and won't come through. Second application for Drufok 410 at an integrated board mill. Um, Nalco tried to beat us. Axchem product, they, they failed. Axchem products failed under high pH conditions. But we eventually lost this business to Axchem, I have to say. And that's only because of the mill's myopic view on sludge dewatering. They, they decided that they didn't need to get good performance. And if they had to put all the sludge out to the lagoon every time the pH started to go high, they were okay with that because it wasn't in their budget that year. But down, it was totally, total, total insanity as far as I'm concerned managing business uh, where they could have paid a little bit more with us and got the thing and had the thing working all the time. So in this chart here, you could see that the Aptec polymer maintains its, its cationic charge and its molecular structure all across the entire pH range. Whereas the atom-E type of polymer that everybody else has that's not making Aptec begins to deteriorate after the pH goes above 8. Yet another ap application at a fluff pulp mill where we replaced Axchem again um, because they couldn't perform. But some of the dividends, the reasons that our stuff is cheaper for the mill in the end is in this case, and in the prior case, the prior case they were using alum to drop the pH of the sludge. They didn't need to do that with our product. In this case, they're using ferric sulfate to drop the pH of the sludge. They didn't need to do that with our product. So in the end, even though our price per pound was higher, it cost them less to, to operate with our material. You know, so you're just working on price per pound of polymer. It's not going to fly. You have to have everybody look at the overall cost of things and keep them educated because they'll forget soon. Another very successful product for us is this branched and cross-linked emulsion, Grooflock 2475. Um, in a recent application at a tissue mill uh, in the southeast, you know, they, tissue mills have, a, have an issue, and a lot of them do, uh, especially the ones that are using recycled, recycled fiber uh, from their deinking plant. They are capturing the fiber so successfully that there's no uh, fiber left in the sludge to provide structure. And their sludge, when they dewater it, it extrudes all out of the belt press, and they can't run the plant. So Kamira had the business there, and they couldn't run the belts. So they had to put in colloidal silica to act to, to provide a microparticle structure so the sludge would hold up, and using a, quite, a, quite a bit of it. Um, they were using their linear polymer technology. We came in with our branched polymer technology, the 2475. You see the difference between linear and branched, what they look like on this side. And our polymer provided the structure. Their cake solids increased from 28 to 35% and they didn't have to use the colloidal silica anymore. Um, also, their, their feed system uh, systems could be simplified, too, because the Chimera product didn't invert very well through the simple uh, feed systems like the, uh, the Tempest-type ones, whereas ours did. So 
It's uh, just another application that you should know about. So when this prior application in the tissue mill, the main thing is we increase the compressive strength of the sludge so it wouldn't extrude on the, on the belt press. And we have uh, honed a method to evaluate the compressive strength of sludge in our lab. So if you're doing work to sell a prospect, you could say, hey, our lab could look at the compressive strength of this, and we could test a bunch of different polymers on your sludge and come up with something that we know will improve the compressive strength. You don't have to rely on me and how I'm squeezing this stuff and what it feels like. We could give you real scientific numbers. So here's how, here's how it works. You see this, uh, the, the cam pushing this platen down on the sludge. The main thing is we have to get the sludge cakes to all be of the same, with the different polymers of the same overall weight. And then what it looks looks at is the resistance to, to pressure and provides us all of this data here that you see on the right, uh, the bending strength, the yield index, the modulus, the peak load and all. And we could compare polymers that way. Uh, we just, we've been just doing this for one of our customers. So this is a really cool new technology. Nobody else is doing it, and uh, you know it's something to talk about with uh, with the, the tissue mill people and others that are having a problem with sludge extrusion. So um, I know I'm running out of time here. Um, I wanted to also talk about the Aptac emulsion. Um, we were really successful with that in a uh, high pH sludge. It also looks very good for um, influent water clarification applications. And um, it, it replaces both a coagulant and a flocculant in the testing that I've been doing. So it's like a dual purpose polymer. And there's a lot of savings associated with that, um, with this product. So in influent clarification applications, you ought to test this it's only about 25% solid, so it takes about 1 ppm, but it works very well in influent and also works well in high pH applications. Um, the last, the other product that we've been very successful with is this branched anionic for dewatering uh, in tissue and towel applications. It, it works over a very wide range. Um, this is one case at, at, at one mill uh, where it worked really well. Um, we improved our cake solids by five percentage points, and uh, it was lower cost than the, than the cationic to use, and it mixes more easily into high, high solid sludge because of the branch structure. Another application we just recently uh, succeeded at was a GE application, again using cationic polymer. Um, we found that we could use this over about 60% lower 65% of the dosage of the cat, and it provided um, very good savings, about 35%, and worked over a much broader range uh, than the cationic did. Occasionally, though, it does require 25 ppm of a, of a cationic flocculant or coagulant, Amarfloc 45, you know, when they're having trouble with their DAF chemistry. Another application we took from Chemtreat uh, just recently. Um, 
the chemistry product would just fail when there would be slight fluctuations in the charge of the sludge. This product just coasted right through. Um, it worked in our favor, too, because the account became more valuable. The chemistry product wouldn't treat. We made more money in the chemistry than this. So, um, in other applications, you could use this structured polymer with Amerflock 490 coagulant at about a 50-50 ratio, and it, it pretty much will dewater anything, and the structure helps to make a very dry sludge. So that's, that's another technique you might try. So um, the last thing I'm going to talk about, and I'll show you a video, is our, our um, Perform Dynamax inline dynamic mixer. And, uh, and I'll try to, to narrate it. These videos can be found online. Um, and I could send anybody the link that wants to see them. And uh, this is a, a new inline mixing device. It works very well with high solid sludge and sludge that, that is viscous and is difficult to mix in the polymer. And it replaces a lot of this older uh, equipment. So here's the video. In this application, it's a validation application. There are four different belt presses that they were running. One press they were never able to run because they couldn't get the polymer to mix in well. It always took about 30% more polymer to even get that press to run. And, and we're going to compare to their best press. You'll see that starting in just a second. Four belt presses. They're all using a swing arm uh, check valve type of mixing. This is press number one. Their best press. It's optimized at 40% on the polymer polymer pump right now. And this is the best it gets. You can see they don't utilize all of the, the belt um, it just all kind of clumps up in the middle and, and runs out. This is the best they were able to run without our mixer. We ran on press number two. We installed this Perform Dynamax inline dynamic mixer. Here's the rotor for the mixer. Here's what it looks like. It's a pretty rugged, durable unit. So we began on this press with the mixer off. We're feeding 30% more polymer than they would need, and it just looks horrible. This is about as good as they can get this pest. We turn the mixer on at 80% mixer speed, and this is what happened. It was just amazing how, how well it worked. Then we increased the mixer speed to 100%, and we lost a little bit. This is just our validation process. Following that, we reduced it down to 50%. It was a little less good. So we knew that we should leave it set at 80%. So, so the next step is to reduce the polymer dosage from 40% pump speed to 30%. And you can see we're starting to lose it a little, but we're still better than the other press. Now we reduced it to 25% and we really began to lose it. So we could, the, so we're able to reduce the polymer from, from 40% to 30% and get superior performance. Now it's back up to 40 and uh, we're getting great results. Customer runs it at 40, but they could, they could trim it if they wanted to. Take solids went up between uh, three and five percent.
uh, thank you all for uh, calling in or Skyping in, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you for attending the Water and Wastewater Podcast. We hope that you found the information useful. If you have any further need of information, please visit the IWT Technical Training Resources site or contact someone within the applications team.